Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, We are up against the 100-day mark for the Biden administration. And of course, later tonight, the president will give his first major speech to a sort of joint session of Congress, one of these socially distanced things where he's going to unveil another um, big spending plan. We'll, we, we can talk about uh, we can talk about that. But there's so much going on, including it's sort of one of those, you know, choose your crazy day. And um, well, at least that's what I was hoping to do with uh, with Amanda Carpenter this morning, uh, our colleague uh, who joins me on today's podcast. So good morning, Amanda. Hey, Charlie. All right. So choose your crazy. Where do do we start in this target-rich environment? Hmm. Well, you know, I want to be optimistic about things. And I think there is a silver lining to all the crazy that's happening. It is getting nutty, but it's dumber than ever. It is dumber (laughs) than ever. The, The fake meat stories, the fake Kamala Harris books being handed out. You know, I am not threatened by these stories. Okay, so that's, this, this this is the good news. The the good yes. news is it's crazy, but at least it's dumb. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not scary and crazy. I'll take dumb and crazy any day. No, that's fair. By the way, did you see that latest development on 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 the uh, the Kamala Harris handing out the books to the the people at the border? It turns out there was one book that was donated. The reporter who wrote the story has resigned from the New York Post, okay? And she said, she tweeted out, the Kamala Harris story, an incorrect story I was ordered to write in which I failed to push back hard enough against was my breaking point. (laughs) So (laughs) unpack the ethics of all of this. So I knew it was bogus. I didn't object. I got busted on it. So now I'm taking a stand on principle. Is that unfair? Yeah, it, Am I being hard? I'm being hard ass on this. I... Yeah, be hard. I, if I recall correctly, this isn't exactly the first time this has happened with the New York Post. Wasn't this some of the funny business with some of the Hunter Biden stories? No, yeah. that they didn't have a byline with a reporter who would actually stand by it. And so, you know, wah wah, reporter. I, I'm glad you wised up now when it they came to you to put a fake story on your byline. Uh, but I would have been running out of there mm, maybe, maybe last year. Well, it was interesting, you know, h- how deeply uh, Fox News got into that whole the, the whole burger story and the whole and and the whole uh, fake book story. But I, I guess that is that is the the, the good news. I'm going to circle back on that. See, I was thinking that in terms of choosing your crazy, this morning I wake up and I see that Joe Rogan is telling people not to get vaccinated. And your old buddy, Jim DeMint, is saying, Joe Rogan is absolutely right. By the way, when I say your old buddy, there's always quote marks on it. I need, I need to like- See, this is why I had to be optimistic up front, because yeah, yeah. I knew this was coming. Yeah, I used to work for a Jim. I loved working for Jim DeMint. Um, See, this is crazy, and-, and it's dumb, but it might be deadly. So- uh, No, it's bad. Th- this is bad. And- You know, it's just, it, I, I don't know where they're going with this. And so when I saw that- this combined with a number of other people on the right at Fox News, radio, other places who are are taking a stance against vaccinations or if they want to be maybe more clever about it, just saying, well, maybe you don't need to do this. Maybe you're special, you know, male 21 year old. Maybe you don't need to get it. And I I just I used to think that the anti-vax thing was a crazy, fringy idea that you would sort of see pop up on the left and the right with our Robert Kennedy Jr., Kenny, uh, Jenna, Jenny McCarthy. But now here's Jim DeMitt echoing Joe Rogan, telling 21-year-old people they, they don't really need to do it. So, but let's talk this anti-vax stuff. I mean, you're right. You used to be Berkeley lefties who would would object to vaccines, but this has become like a thing on the right. Is is it is it just is it a way of sort of signaling, you know, objections to what, what's going on? I mean, just uh, you know, tribal loyalty. Is it part of the the long-running anti-science, anti-expertise strain that we're increasingly getting on 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 the right, or what? It's just, or, or or is it just attention getting? I mean, I, listen, I get that people would have reservations about government mandated vaccines and people should look into it. They should talk to their doctor about it. I mean, I certainly did when my kids, you know, they're combining vaccines and just asking, what is this? What's the spacing? Because I want to know what's going into my kid's body. That is fine. 
Uh, I remember having conversations on Capitol Hill when they were talking about mandating the Gardasil vaccine for girls yeah. uh, to prevent cancer. And, you know, I have reservations about that because it's like, okay, you know, I don't know if my daughter, I think I would know if my daughter is sexually active or not. I'd rather that be my choice to have that talk with her at that age, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I think a healthy amount of curiosity in, in questioning about the science is well and good. But this stuff with COVID, when you know it's a deadly disease, you know it's tested. And this just feels like it is reflexively anti-liberal in that I'm just going to be contrarian contrarian against whatever the Biden administration, the media, and the establishment is saying. Okay. It, it, this yeah. isn't a thoughtful critique. It, and the well for this is just so deep. I think people can just jump in it and not worry about how low they're going to go. Okay, but it's not a straight line. I mean, just I, I, everything you said is absolutely true here. But, you know, what's bizarre about it is that you could also have made the case that the vaccine was one of Donald Trump's most successful legacies of his presidency, right? And and he's actually said to take the vaccine. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm not defending Donald Trump, mm -hmm. but you could certainly imagine a counter narrative that would say, yes, the vaccines are out there and we're going to call it the Trump vaccine because it was the Trump vaccine that we got out of Operation Warp Speed and yada, 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 yada. It's like there's a complete disconnect there, isn't there? Yeah. And I think if they wanted, you know, the Trump people had a line that they could have pursued if they actually would have admitted that coronavirus was real. But I, I don't think they could come to the grips of the fact that Donald Trump actually was responsible for letting it come to our shores and spreading around. That just kind of just fried their brains out. So after that, nothing, nothing good could come of it. But the... The path that he pursued is actually, I think, kind of in step with the American ethos. And I'm not endorsing everything he did, but in the fact that as Americans, we generally pursue large technological solutions to our big problems instead of taking easy day-to-day -day mitigation efforts. Meaning, I think there were probably smart people in the administration that said, just let this thing take its course and we're going to double down on the vaccine what happens, happens, and we're just going to get the shots out, and that'll take care of it next year. Okay, speaking of of day to day mitigation techniques, I, look, I, I do not want to pile on. I'm, I'm, I believe it's feeling. I don't want to pile on the, the 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 CDC, but they come up with this new guideline for people who are fully vaccinated wearing masks outside, and and so there they came up with it with a with a chart of you know when you cannot wear a mask. It seems, however. You know, they're still saying that vaccinated people wear masks in in crowded outdoor settings and a variety of other things. I, I you know, I, I guess part of this is shouldn't the message be get vaccinated and get your life back? Yep. It, it seems that they are slow walking this and they're not connecting with people in the real world. I mean, look, I think that every person that I've talked to that is fully vaccinated, it's not a political decision. They're going, hey. I'm getting my life back when I go outside and there's air blowing around and it's getting warm. I'm not going to wear a mask. Now, I suppose if you went to a rave outside or something like that, but it does seem that they're slow walking it and, and that they're underplaying this, this the strongest argument you could make. Your life can return and you can do amazing things if you get the vaccine. And instead, we get the CDC saying, eh, no, you can't really do that. No, you can't really do that. And it's like, it's not going to be that big a deal for you. Like, I'm not, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it feels very technocratic, you know, baby steps. We don't want to overpromise. This is the point where you can, you know, Joe Biden do the good old blue collar Joe, look the Americans in the face and say, use your gosh dang sense. If you get the vaccine, you're vaccinated, you get your life back. If you're not, if you're in a crowded area, you know, six six feet or less from people, you should wear your mask. But schools are opening and we're going to be back this summer. Do yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, that that's that seems that seems reasonable. You know, we'll we'll spend a lot of time talking about the president's speech. I want to shift gears. The president is giving this big speech tonight and he's unveiling uh, he's unveiling another $1.8 trillion plan. I mean, this is, you know. It's trillion, getting ridiculous. Well, a trillion here, a trillion there. It, it adds up to real money at a certain point. So the plan, you know, tonight uh, that he's going to unveil is, uh, you know, supposedly will uh, expand access to education, safety net programs for families, $400 billion for the child tax credit, $225 billion to improve childcare, $225 billion for national paid family and medical leave program, 
$200 billion for free universal pre, uh, preschool, $200 billion to reduce Obamacare premiums, $109 billion for free community college, $85 billion to boost Pell Grants, $45 billion for childhood and school nutrition programs. Look, this is big. This is a really big thing. So I have, I have a question to ask you, Amanda. This is, you add this together with the other plans. And uh, back of the envelope, he's either proposed or signed $6 trillion in new spending. I mean, by any measure, this is one of the largest expansions of the federal government uh, since New Deal slash Great Society. So here's my, my provocative question. Where's the Tea Party now? Where's the grassroots push against all of this spending? Why aren't we seeing rallies and demonstrations and, you know, people with the tri-cornered hat now, given all of this? Because instead, we're getting a lot of the stuff about the Dr. Seuss and the, the, the bogus meat story and the Kamala Harris book story and, you know, some you know rhetoric about socialism. But where's the Tea Party? There is none. Donald Trump killed it. Mm. It's over. Nobody, nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares. Um, I, I think this speaks to the larger leadership vacuum that we are facing. I, I don't want to say post-Trump Republican Party, maybe just post-Trump White House. He, he's he's kind of like the golden hermit king who's just crawling around his palace down there in Florida, and maybe he'll change his shell and come up to New Jersey sometime. But with his silence and his sheltering in place, I, I do think he's freezing the larger Republican field, not just in terms of 2024 presidential candidates, but just in terms of direction. I, I don't think people know what to do. Listen, Donald Trump was not a policymaker. The, the problem with serving a mad king is that you never know when he's going, what he's going to say next or when he's going to whack you. And so if somebody wants to make a critique of Biden spending money here or there, What's not to say that Donald Trump says something different and cuts the knees out from underneath them? And so I think I really think this is why we're talking about Dr. Seuss, because those are safe topics. No, when you say that they killed it, is it because of all of his spending and his deficits? I mean, that's a so how do you draw the straight line between people who are deeply, deeply concerned about the debt and deficit with the Tea Party and then still call themselves members of the Tea Party? I mean, there are people who still have the the brand, right? I mean, you know, Tea Party Express and everything, who then morphed into complete acolytes for Donald Trump, who had no problem with adding what I mean, how many trillions of dollars did they add to the debt? That's exactly what happened. I mean, if you look at the Tea Party leaders, the Jenny Beth Martins, the Amy Kramers, they became, you know, uh, women for Trump sponsoring the riot rally. That's exactly what happened. They decided that having power was more important than policy or principles. I mean, it's a very seamless transition for people like them. Okay, so what was the Tea Party actually all about? Okay, now the reason I'm asking this is because, you know, when you raise this question, we're going to have a lot of people who are yelling at the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yelling at us right now saying it was all about race. It was all about the fact that Obama was a black president. And obviously, um, that argument seems more plausible with time. But I remember there were people who were sincerely concerned or said they were about this. And I think, I mean, you you remember the Tea Party. You kind of have to break it down because it was all things to all people in, in, in a certain way there. Mm-hmm. There were there was a genuine grassroots, sincere uh, part of that movement. But then there were the grifters. There were the professional outrage entrepreneurs. And there were the complete hypocrites. And so it's it's hard to sort of disaggregate what the hell it actually was. I remember at the time, about a year and a half, you know, I mean, I, I was I was initially impressed with it. And then after a while, I was going, well, what the hell is going on here? All of these people calling themselves the Tea Party. It's like they all sort of glommed onto it and decided that they were going to, uh, you know, they were going to have the, this this mantle around their shoulders. And I wasn't quite clear where they were going, what they believed, what the agenda was. But I, I think if you want to get a sense of what was going on on the right, the way in which the, the 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 grifters and the entrepreneurs and just the complete hypocrites took over that movement. That was a pretty good, you know, uh, indication of, of of where this party was going even pre-Trump. Yeah, you know, I'm just sort of thinking as you're talking about watching Obama deliver his uh, State of the Union addresses and talking about his expansions with it comes to Obamacare and the various other things that he was proposing that really pale into comparison to what Joe Biden is going to say tonight. No, no, and, and, there's, and there's no grassroots opposition to it whatsoever. And that well, it, it really is a stunning thing. I mean, listen, Charlie, what, 
$6.1 trillion? Why doesn't Biden do $10 trillion? Why not? He has a free pass apparently to do whatever he wants right now because the all the only kind of policy I see critiques I see from the right when it comes to the Biden administration is, you know, where is Kamala and why isn't she down at the border? Like, okay, okay, (laughs) they should just laugh at that and add $10 trillion more. Or, I mean, I'm not or, saying that because I yeah. want them to, but I'm just being spiteful. No, I mean, you, you, you close your eyes and p- put your finger on any one of these these items, whether it's, you know, the $200 billion, the $250 billion, whatever. If, if Barack Obama had proposed any one of those items, the conservative movement would have been hair on fire. This would have been a call to arms. And as it is, what happens? He's going to give this speech and the passion you, you mentioned a couple of things, but the real, you know what the real passion on the right is right now is, is still continuing to stop the steal, the, the whole mm-hmm. re, re, relitigating the big lie, election integrity. Every Republican everywhere is running on that. Now, of course, they, they throw out the, the, you know, the argument that, you know, this is all socialism and everything. But, but one thing that strikes me is, is that it doesn't seem to, well, maybe it is resonating. It resonated, you know, in, in 2020 in some of the congressional races, but, the country has moved to the left on this, and most of these element, these items, which are incredibly expensive, and I have no idea how we're actually going to pay for them, but but they're popular, and it, and it creates a problem, doesn't it? When when you see things like the Monmouth poll that shows that two thirds of Americans support these massive spending plans, that's that's a challenge for Republicans who have been basically recycling the same lines about debts and deficit for a generation and now are kind of like, okay, we did the same thing and public's really not with us on this stuff anymore. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on a lot of that. I I think if you ask people, you know, would you like to spend $10 million on bridges and roads? They would say yes. But then go back and ask them in three years if, if if that spending made a difference in their community or not. Because a lot of these programs get proposed and the money doesn't have a visible presence in a lot of these communities. And so I'm just like, "Mm, we'll we'll see about that. Everybody says it's popular. Everybody wants to spend the money. But get back to me in a few years if people feel that it made a tangible difference in their life. But the, the flip side of this, all the where is the Republican Party stuff, they're in retreat. I mean, I think we just have to look at where it is, is that they're in retreat. They got their butts kicked. They don't know what to do. They're in the wilderness right now. I mean, the hottest thing happening is this Arizona audit, which is just going to be another Q documentary probably in six months. Um, And another element of this that is worth consideration is I think it is very difficult for Donald Trump, which we do have to recognize him as the symbolic leader of the Republican Party, the 2024 nomination is there for the taking. Why isn't he making a critique of Joe Biden? Hmm. And I think it has to do with the fact that he hasn't come to terms with losing to Joe Biden. How do you critique a guy who voters chose over you? For Donald Trump's personality, I think that's just something that shortwires the brain. I, I don't think you can get there. And that's what this Arizona audit is all about. Why is he hammering Governor Ducey so hard? Because he needs a figment of a win to redeem himself to the public, to show his face on television again. I I think he's looking for that small sliver of a victory so that he, he can come back because he needs it. And until he gets something to do that, don't expect to don't expect to see him. So this is where you have this this kind of paradox where he still has this iron grip on the Republican Party, but he's he is relatively quiet. He he's not providing any intellectual leadership. So there is kind of a leadership void at the moment. And so when we talk about, you know, why do we talk about Tucker Carlson? Why is he, you know, taking such a prominent role? It's because there's kind of a void there, isn't there? Yeah. Roger Ailes, gone. Rush Limbaugh, gone. Donald Trump gone oh look there's tucker being clipped on twitter every night at nine o'clock he's the new character and that's what he is i mean he's really reducing himself to a character and i'm conflicted about the amount of attention that people should give him because it is important because he does speak to um an important republican base but at the same time, he's he's gone so far out there on the vaccination stuff, on the white nationalist populism stuff. I, I think he's really 
putting himself in, in into a corner that he's not going to be able to get out of. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's it's, the it's, Wicked it's, Witch laugh. The Wicked Witch. Uh, which, which I still find sort of endlessly fascinating because it's so weird. But okay, so yesterday you had an outstanding piece in the Bulwark about the the new populism because okay so the republicans are trying to figure out what they're going to to do um there seems to be a tremendous attraction by some of the folks who are the most ambitious like uh, Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio for what you call punitive populism and suggest that you know this may be the future of the republican party that that, that the some of these folks think that this is the new formula so tell me about punitive populism yeah, the biggest question through the Trump years and people forecasting beyond it was who is going to be able to translate Trumpism into something meaningful? And my gosh, a lot of people tried. I mean, how how often did we hear about the economic anxiety? And this kind of led to, led to the rise of JD Vance and these other people that would try to you know put some kind of defensible framework around what he was doing. And at some point, somebody is going to come up with something. And that's when I was watching all these proposals come out after the Georgia voting laws to start punishing corporations who spoke out against it. Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Major League Baseball. And you really saw Republicans and not just the people who are out there. We're talking Mitch McConnell, who is is the elected leader of the Republican Party right now, the most powerful Republican uh, in Washington, saying, yeah, there'll be consequences for corporations who speak out against our priorities, not just on the elections law, but in everything from Second Amendment to environmentalism. Uh, he, he had a whole list of things that he was willing to take punitive action uh, against corporations, against if they exercise their constitutional right to political speech in a way that hurt him uh, potentially in an election. And so I, I think there's something here because it is, if, if you're going to go down the path of this nationalist populism thing, it's not free market. It, it's not a traditional chamber of commerce, uh, free market, free trade, economic theory. It's we're going to hurt people who hurt us. Yes. We're going to overthrow that. I mean, that's what populism is about, right? When you get down to it. And Josh Hawley has been on this for quite some time, and he's been focused predominantly on big tech, you know, Amazon, which he just wants to smash up because they don't they don't sell all the books he wants. They're selling his book, but they're not selling all the books he wants. Okay, by the um, way, can we just stop yeah. right there because because <laughs> yeah. this is this is so delicious. I, I just I just need to you know, put a little bit of a box around this that that Josh Hawley is putting out a book attacking big tech, and he has a tweet, you know, uh, you know that I'm, we're going after big tech. Buy my book on Amazon.com. Yeah, that's just too good. I mean, I'm sorry that I'm sorry that irony is already dead because I think irony would have enjoyed that 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 he's he's pushing out Amazon.com. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, no, please. Um, the thing that's so interesting to me about it is, I think Josh Hawley pioneered the space with trying to go after big tech, and and by that he means Amazon and Facebook. Um, which there's there's problems with Facebook. We can talk about the algorithms, but he really just wants to smash it up because they don't share his values, and and that that is something new. And Marco Rubio has been echoing this. Uh, you know, the only reason I would read a New York Post op-ed is if Marco Rubio wrote something stupid in it, which needs to be mocked, which he did this week, um, in saying that he wants to start going after people because they don't share his quote working class values. Well, what are those? What are those? I mean, do they actually have to do with anything about populism, economics, uh, improving opportunity, or is this all culture war? It's oh. all culture war, but it's 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 such a grab bag. Uh, some of the things that he lists about why uh, Amazon should be punished is because they didn't sell a book on transgender theory. Uh, Amazon uses the Southern Poverty Law Center for selecting which charities you can donate to through his Amazon Smile program. And because Amazon does business in China. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty subjective, but okay, that's what we're doing now. You don't comply to my values. You get the you get the fist. I I still have a pro. Okay, I and 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 clearly the you know the this is, gives them their chance to you know put a a, a populist veneer going up again. I mean, 
going up against you know big business, which of course is going to appeal to many of their supporters, there was always that cognitive dissonance of with all the populist rhetoric, what was one of the major accomplishments of Republicans under Trump was giving you this big wet sloppy kiss to corporate America. So I mean, there was always that gap and now they're going after them. So here's my question though, is how deep does this run? This is still the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell still runs the Republican Party in the Senate. None of them are actually going to vote to raise corporate income taxes. I mean, I understand the rhetoric and the posturing and all of all of that going on. But is, is Josh Hawley really the intellectual policy future of the Republican Party? That's a good question. I think what he's doing is interesting. He has put the most thought into going down this route. If you're asking me if this is a viable intellectual policy framework for the future of the Republican Party, I would say no, but we haven't had one for the last four years. So I don't, I'm not even sure that matters. I've mentioned this for, for you know a, a couple of times, but it, it, it does seem to contribute to the political climate we're in right now where the Democrats are they're planning to increase uh, corporate taxes, uh, increase taxes on capital gains, increase taxes on uh, income of people more than 400,000. And, and again, that used to be a bright line for Republicans, but it's hard now for Republicans to defend low corporate taxes at the same time they are waging this anti-corporate campaign. It does seem to have created a political window for Joe Biden and the Democrats, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I remember a few years ago, every Republican in America would be saying they are raising the taxes on the job creators, American corporations, or, you know, what is creating all of this prosperity. And now at the same time they're demonizing them, it becomes harder to argue why they shouldn't pay a little bit more in taxes, right? I, I guess this is the problem. We keep trying to fit a policy debate on top of what they're doing when it's all culture war. Right. If the Republican Party is just choosing to be reflexively anti-liberal, that's it. It, it doesn't have to be consistent on corporate taxes because the idea now is that it's us versus them. This is the kind of nationalist populism that I, I think is working for them right now. And if you're looking at the midterms, you don't have to win that many more seats. And if you just want to be reflexively anti-liberal, take a pass on fighting all these policy fights and say, you know, it doesn't really matter what we feel about corporations. We're just going to smash up Amazon and big tech and MLB and anybody who doesn't share our values. Well, that's that's the game right now. You know, so there's a real asymmetry between the two parties here in, in terms of their approach to this. But the Democrats are coming up with one policy proposal after another while the Republicans continue to be almost completely devoid of actual positive policy issues. So we may disagree or be concerned about the cost, but they are talking about, you know, the child tax credit, child care, child care workers, you know, paid leave, um, infrastructure programs, broadband. Whereas this beating heart of the Republican Party seems to be like playing a completely different game. I mean, it's, it's, it's like watching one yeah. team, one team is playing professional football and the other team is off here doing something else. I, I just, I, I'm my analogy. It's exactly right. Yeah. It's policy war versus a culture war. Some people are having an academic debate inside and outside they're playing dodgeball. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Right? So could I talk about Liz Cheney for just a moment? Please. Okay. So I, I didn't know my, I was going to love her so much. Okay. God, well, my my <laughs> newsletter today is is a is well, it's a it's it's kind of a it's kind of a love note. It's uh, Liz Liz Cheney's profile in Courage, and uh, you know, you know, she is doing something very different from a lot of other Republicans. Obviously, okay. I I meant to say that um, in in not such a Captain Obvious way, but you know, I, I start off my newsletter by saying, you know, you know why Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to be seen with Liz Cheney these days because the contrast would be too obvious. So here you have a Republican Party that's always talking about we are, you know, we are manly, we are strong, we fight. When the reality is, no, they're not. They they are cowering and they are weak and they cave. And the one person that stands up 
and says, no, I'm going to fight, even if it costs me everything, is Liz Cheney. And so she is a, a Republican unicorn. She is the, and the contrast between the Castrati um, running the Republican Party is pretty, you know, interesting coming from from uh, the, the the highest ranking woman. But she's standing there. She is a solidly conservative person. She has, she makes no pretense that she's a Biden Republican. She's not a squish. She's not a rhino. She is hardcore conservative. She's a member of leadership and she is just not bending an inch on her critique of Donald Trump. And it is driving Republicans uh, crazy. So, I mean, there's two things here. I mean, is that you know, she is extremely vulnerable here. She represents a state overwhelmingly run by Donald Trump. I mean, on paper, it looks like she's committing political suicide. And yet, unlike almost everyone else, she's not moving left. She's not curing, She's not showing up on MSNBC or CNN, is she? You know, she's no. just doing her thing. And I have to say, in terms of political courage, we talk a lot about it, but it is vanishingly rare. And you want an example. That woman right now, and it's driving Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump out of their freaking minds. Yeah, I, I love the profile that Robert Draper wrote, uh, Liz versus MAGA. Yeah. And what was interesting about that, and he was recounting the leadership meeting where uh, they were voting to strip her from her position. And there was Republicans jeering her, saying it looked like she was their girlfriend who's cheering for the other team. And I appreciated in that piece that there were obviously Republican women in that room who spoke to Robert Draper telling what happened in that meeting because they objected to it. Um, and then I saw that uh, Kevin McCarthy was asked uh, yesterday uh, whether she, sh she should still have a position in leadership. And his answer was, well, that's a question for the conference. And I looked at that and I said, well, that's been asked and answered. You did have that vote. That did happen. She called all you fools on the carpet and said, let's have a vote. And she won that vote. And so the conference has spoken. And Kevin McCarthy can't state that obvious fact because he's still scared of the guys who don't support her, including in those guys, Donald Trump. Yeah. And so no, one, no wonder he doesn't want to stand next to her. No wonder. Because no, it, she already ate his lunch and drank his milkshake. Well, and remember, it was McCarthy who supported her. He actually supported her back then, but he's pressed for his personal opinion. I'm reading from Politico now. McCarthy told a room full of reporters that, quote, if you're sitting here at a retreat that's focused on policy, focused on the future of making America next century, and you're talking about something else, you're not being productive. So he seems to be, you know, wanting to distance himself. Like, you know, you would, you would think that these guys at some point would just have some pride. Just, just come on, don't embarrass yourself with time and time again. And so that's it. She just stands there and goes, you know what? Uh, we can't forget January 6th. What happened on January 6th is a threat to democracy. We cannot put our heads in the sand. And she, you know, her ramrod straight position is such a dramatic contrast to the quote unquote men in the room. You know, I, again, I, I understand why Kevin McCarthy does not want to stand next to her anymore. I mean, it is it is embarrassing. Speaking well, of the fact that yeah, he told yeah. some reporter that she should tone it down. That was that was the message that she needs to tone it down. Go tell that to Marjorie Taylor. Go tell that to Matt Gates when he was going to her district to be a little troll and, and try to, uh, you know, get people to show up to yell at her. So she'd have to spend a couple more thousand dollars on personal security. You go tell those people to go tone it down. Go down to Mar-a-Lago and tell Donald Trump, not, don't tone it down. Stay quiet. Stay quiet and stay out of the way. How about that? Well, exactly. Well, and one of the most embarrassing things that I've read in some time is watching McCarthy over the weekend try to revise the history of his position on January 6th, where he had this sort of moment of conscience, this moment of insight, this moment of independence, and he, he got over it really, really quickly. But the fact that he's embarrassed about one of his better moments when he actually called out Trump after the riot because he was there, he knows what happened. And now he's trying to back off. Oh, we didn't really try to overturn the election. Bullshit. You signed on to that Texas lawsuit, which would have overturned the election. You know what Donald Trump did. You know what the conversation was. And, and yet, you know, he, he apparently thinks that this kind of absolute spinelessness, and that's not as strong a word as I actually want to use here 
is is what it's going to take to get him in the speaker position. I mean, it used you know, to be that, that that actual leadership, you know, that if you wanted to be in a position of power, you showed leadership. Now the incentive structure is is that the weaker and the more disingenuous and cowardly you are, uh, the better it is for your your career, at least in the current Republican Party. You know who I want to see Kevin McCarthy sit down and have a little chat with on camera so I can watch? Who? Uh, police officer uh, Michael Fanone. Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Okay, so speaking of which, so one of the things that is upsetting Republicans is that Liz Cheney keeps going back saying, we cannot move on from January 6th. We need to take it seriously. We can't pretend it didn't happen. And at the same time, we get that interview on CNN. By the way, thank you for for giving us all at the Bulwark a heads up when that was actually happening, because it really is a must uh, listen. I mean, there, I mean, there's people need to go if you haven't seen it. This is the uh, police officer who, who was uh, he was almost killed. Um, and and his speaking out. He, here's the headline in the Washington Post: DC officer who suffered heart attack on January 6 calls out Trump for downplaying brutal, savage. Riot, And he says, it's been very difficult seeing elected officials and other individuals kind of whitewash the events of that day or downplayed, uh, downplay what happened. Some of the terminology that was used, like hugs and kisses and very fine people, is very different from what I experienced and what my coworkers experienced on the 6th. So this appeared on uh, C- CNN tonight, last night, Don Lemon uh, uh, talking with uh, with Officer Fanon. Let, let's play this where he talks about how the, the demonstrators were, were, were not offering to, um, were not hugging and kissing him. They were trying to kill him. Let's play it. Uh, the, the former president has said, and I know that you don't want to make this political, but it said, you know, those were, those were good people. Um, they loved their country. They were basically ushered into the Capitol. They walked into the Capitol and that it wasn't it wasn't a big deal that they're patriots. What did you experience that day? And what do you think of that rhetoric? I think it's dangerous. Um, it is very much not the experience that I had on the 6th. Um, you know, I experienced a group of individuals that were trying to uh, kill me to accomplish, you know, their goal. Um, and I think that <sighs> sorry, Don. Man, I didn't think I'd get this emotional. Um Yeah, I mean I experienced the most brutal uh savage uh hand to hand combat of my entire life let alone my policing career, which spans almost two decades. Um, it was nothing that that I had ever uh, thought would be a part of my law enforcement career, and nor was I prepared to experience. Wow. So, Amanda, you've written a book about gaslighting, but... How does Kevin McCarthy and Ron Johnson and others look at that and listen to that and continue to behave the way they are or say the things they've been saying? They're not looking at it. They're not listening to it. I mean, they've shoved it out of their minds and they've told themselves that it wasn't a big deal. There's a festive atmosphere there that day, Charlie. These were nice people. They were having a picnic. That's why there has to be accountability. When it comes to January 6th, there has to be accountability. Yes, there was the impeachment trial for Donald Trump, but what about all these other guys? What about that? I you listen to, I mean, just listening to that interview is is hard. Watching it, I mean, he's just he's your prototype cop guy, you know, good looking, beard, in shape, and watching him just kind of like lose it, it rips your heart out and punches you in the stomach. He does not deserve that. None of those men and women who went there to protect the Capitol that they deserve to be treated like this. They deserve some respect. And you think that the people who they're charged with protecting their lives, you think they would do them the courtesy of looking what ha- looking at what happened so it wouldn't happen again. And maybe saying the guy that fomented this riot 
shouldn't be in charge of the Republican Party ever again. How hard is that? Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the Michael Fanon story. So he's a DC cop. It wasn't like he was just there that day. He had a heart attack. He had a concussion. He was shocked with a stun gun and beaten by these people. I mean, when he's talking about it was violent and it was brutal, it's because he experienced first time. He got beat. He was the guy that you probably saw in other clips where the people are saying, take his gun and use it against him. He thought he was going to die that day. And we're very lucky that he didn't. And I cannot believe that we still have elected Republicans walking around who dare to show their face in public, who act like it didn't happen. It just, it blows my mind. It, 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 and it ought to blow people's mind. I mean, that's, that's the thing about, that's the thing about gaslighting, um, which is to make you think that, you know, well, you, you, you define gaslighting since you wrote the book about it. I'm not going to tell you what gaslighting is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, this is, I thought gaslighting is pretty bad. I mean, gaslighting has caused people to believe in an alternate reality that they have constructed. And that has definitely happened here. And I always feared that Donald Trump would use the powers of government to gaslight people for his political ends, but never, I mean, nobody could have predicted that he would have gaslit America with a big election lie that would cause people to storm the Capitol in hopes of overturning President Biden's election and, you know, causing all kinds of pain and damage in the process. Uh, this is short of an actual civil war. I, it doesn't get any worse, does it? So this is what- well, Are you in a pandemic? I guess we got a pandemic as a bonus. Which which also, by the way, didn't have the, wasn't the reality check that was going to shake people loose. Those, those are the two things. You would think that 570,000 Americans dying and the attack on the Capitol would be that moment where people would step back and go, whoa, okay, we need to reevaluate everything. We need to rethink everything. And- you know, you and I have experienced that in different levels way before this, but the fact that it hasn't is amazing. But that brings us back to Liz Cheney because, you know, for her, this was the breaking point. And so when she, when she said that she was going to vote to impeach Trump, um, this is her statement. Remember what she said? The president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution, which is an amazing statement. But, but you know, right now, as we're sitting here, uh, it is far more likely that the Republican Party will exile her than Marjorie Taylor Greene. That, uh, yeah, and this is what's breaking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these are the things that are breaking the party apart. I mean, it goes back to Liz Cheney. It actually goes back to the beginning of our conversation for me with with Jim DeMitt and even uh, by extension to Ted Cruz, both people, senators I, I worked for and enjoyed working for and loved working for. I love my time on Capitol Hill. But the breaking point for me when it comes to you know speaking out against them had to do with coronavirus, which killed people, and the insurrection, which almost killed our democracy. Both Ted Cruz and Jim DeMitt have been on the wrong sides of those two issues. And those are party breaking issues. Those are Republican issues. Those are issues that are, are destroying the Republican party that Trump has broke the party with. And so I, I just, I don't know how we're, how we're going to get put back together yeah. again, if we don't resolve those two things. Well, yeah. And then and, and they, and they seize on these issues. You know, I, I think that historians are going to look back at this period and, and find it extraordinary that uh, masks became so politicized and then vaccines became so politicized. And, and one of the reasons, one of the explanations will have to be that uh, politicians like Jim DeMint and Ted Cruz seized on them because they were the wedge issues, because they were the signals of tribal loyalty. And so they chose them uh, not in spite of the fact that they were divisive, but because they were divisive. So that's that's where we are. And again, I suppose that's the negative thing. W weren't you going to find the the more positive? W weren't you weren't you looking for the silver lining when we started this conversation? Uh, oh yeah, can we talk about uh, Joe Biden banning meat? Actually, could we have some fun? If people are going to be reflexively anti-Biden, uh, what what could he do that would be fun? Could he just come out and say? I love vanilla ice cream and this is why it's great. And then Marco Rubio would try to 
ban it somehow. He's a meat eating guy. That that's the thing why this wasn't going to work with Joe Biden because the guy likes likes barbecue. What if Kamala Harris throws a barbecue at the border? Oh, oh, oh! Well, he's going to ban menthol cigarettes. I, I did see that. So so I suppose now. Uh, supporting oh. menthol cigarettes will be, be will become the big cause on on the on the right. They're going to um, have a smoke out somewhere. Okay, so they're going to smoke menthol cigarettes and probably give themselves a, a nice lung burn. Okay, I, see, I can't have fun with that one. I can't uh, have fun with that one. Yeah, I I guess I'm not I'm not I'm not sure about that. You know, didn't I mean, Donald I, Trump ban vaping? The flavored vapes at some point well, like, for, like, for, for, for about five minutes until the yeah. vape vape <laughs> lobby got to him, you know. And so I don't know the the thing about so this this event tonight is going to be really weird, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 going to be a joint session of Congress, but they're doing the whole social distancing thing, which I I look I understand why why they're doing it, but well, you know, I was uh I, I was I, over the weekend I mentioned this a couple times I I read Boehner's book, which um. I found entertaining, but sort of, you know, um, so we say light, ca- calorie light. Um, okay. do, do not recommend it because at the end you go, that's it? Really? I mean, that's, I mean. I, there's- Does he explain how he came around on mar- selling marijuana? He doesn't no, really sell it. Not, oh. not, not really, but there's a lot on, on why he drinks red wine and golf. So if you want to read a lot about golf. You can no. read read this book, but he does he he does tell a story about how he's sitting next to you know at one point when he became speaker he has to sit next to uh, Joe Biden when Barack Obama was you know giving his speech and what that's like when the president's giving his State of the Union address and um, he uh, he says that he he went to Biden beforehand and he said you know can we like do something these things have become like ridiculous where. Um, you know, one side stands up and applauds and, you know, cheers all the time. And then the other side sits on its hands and it becomes this sort of, you know, massive kabuki dance where, you know, the, the thing goes on forever because everybody has to stage this. So maybe could we like not do the standing ovations for every single yeah. thing? You agree? Could we do that? And Biden says, yeah, 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 that's a good idea. And then, of course, the speech comes around and Biden leans over to him sort of sheepishly and says, you know, I'm going to have to like stand up once in a while. I'm going to have to do this. So I don't know. But there will be one thing that will be interesting. Um, Here's a first. Um, The president of the United States will be giving this speech and the two people sitting behind him will both be women. That's never happened before. That's cool. It is. It is. It is. It is cool. So there's 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 something. They can take Um, Kamala off the milk carton. They found her. She'll be there. She'll have a seat there. They can look at her. Is she on the milk carton? I mean, do you feel that way? Oh, did you see this? Oh no, no, no it was no. Uh, it was one of these stunts at some press conference. They put her name on like a milk carton. Where's Kamala? Why is she not at the border solving immigration? Yeah, I, they, <laughs> they, they, they are they are obsessed with her. I mean, this is one of the themes. You know, people keep saying, "Well, the Republicans haven't figured out how to attack Joe Biden." That's not true. They they have some things. The the border is is a vulnerability. I think. Um, by the way, people ought to check out today's uh, t- today's uh, bulwark because I think there's there's a there's a sort of a line between a number of the the stories you know connecting the dots. Um, James Carville gave that gave an interview to Vox where he he you know urged Democrats to actually talk like they're real people as opposed to you know yeah, but he told Bill enough. Crystal that first, right? He did, he did, he did tell him <laughs> that, and he and he's saying the dangers of wokeness. You know, could you like use words that real people use? So that's good. And then uh, Tim Miller has a piece of sort of advice to Democrats. You know, um, not not to get sidetracked onto some of this other stuff to actually um, figure out how to talk to working class folks about what you're doing and to um, you know maybe call the populist bluff of the Republicans. And Mona Sharon has a very, very provocative piece where she points out that, you know, Biden's doing a good job with the unity, but he's got to be careful about some of the racialized rhetoric. And, and there's a lot of studies and polls that would suggest, you know, the, the the ways to talk about some of these issues that are effective and the ways that play into the right wing's hands. And I think that those are all pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful reads. And again, I would put those in the in the category of uh, uh, constructive uh, criticism. Do you agree with that? Yeah. So I okay. think every all the Biden people should be reading all their stuff constantly. OK, so what else? Are you <laughs> what, what else are you watching later this week? The Republican. Well, I'm going to be curious for the Republican response tonight. Tim Scott will be delivering it. Uh, I saw some of the walk-up pieces saying that he is going to focus uh, a lot on his personal story. Um, I would I would expect him to talk something about police reform since he's the lead Republican guy in that in the Senate. I'd like to hear him talk about the possibility of 
qualify, uh, reaching a deal of qualified immunity. I think that would be great. I, I don't know. Can, also, can we just get a deal on releasing body cam footage for these events, whether at the U.S. Capitol or wherever, immediately, as long as the victim authorizes it? It yeah. seems like that would do a lot of good. One point on that Michael Fanone interview, he has body cam footage. He wants it out. He wants people to see it with all these things that keep happening. Let's have the footage so we can have consensus on what happened immediately. You know, that seems like a very obvious thing. That seems like a very obvious thing. Tape you. That's your body. It's your intellectual property. I'm not a lawyer, but I would make that argument. You get it. And if you want to release it, you can. Um, So anyway, that's that's what I'd like Tim Scott to talk about. On, on 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 Tim Scott, who's been who's been uh, who had been kind of a Trump loyalist, although every once in a while he he breaks with it. But I, he's being attacked uh, rather viciously from folks on the right, including our good friend uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, for working with um you know, working on the issue of of police reform and saying that we have work to do. For some reason, saying that that this country has work to do on you know race police uh, relations, um is is. Uh, apparently dangerous, at least in, in uh, the views of some of the Fox News hosts, raises the possibility, boy, you know what, if if, if Joe Biden were to reach out and co-opt and say, hey, you know what, um, I, I, I like Tim, Cots, uh, Tim, Cots, Tim Scott. Tim Scott. Tim Scott. <laughs> Thank you. That's <laughs> not Cotton. Yeah, that, all, that all is, these guys. That is not a hard uh, name to say either. Uh, I, I like his proposals. If you co-opted that, actually reached across the aisle on something like that, that would really throw um, the right into a tizzy, but it might give him a very significant bipartisan victory. It would be great. It'd it, be the right thing to do. It, it would be wonderful. I, I worry that it would put Tim Scott in trouble, but it, it would be great. Well, it would. And, and that's but yeah. that's what that's what's interesting is that is the Scott is already being vilified for even thinking of being part of the reformers, because uh, a, any show of independence now among Republicans is dangerous. So uh, it would be nice to have a little show of courage on both parties part when it comes to this particular issue. Amanda Carpenter, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. By the way, a quick reminder that we will be having a Bulwark Plus live stream uh, tomorrow night, Thursday night. We do it every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern time. If you're a member of Bulwark Plus, you can uh, you can uh, tune in to, uh, to hear our comments. And obviously, we're going to be talking about the uh, the 100 days and we're going to be talking about uh, we'll be talking about the president's speech. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.